the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. As I intimated earlier, we have been dealing with Paul's prayer in this first chapter for the Colossians. And an integral part of that prayer was thanksgiving. He mentions this twice at least in verse 3 and again in verse 12. We give thanks to God. Giving thanks unto the Father. And we notice what Paul is thanking God for. It's all here in the context. He's thanking God for the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he starts out talking about what the Lord has done for his people. And he mentions that from verse 12 down to verse 14. A number of things are brought forth there. He has made us meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has translated us, and that's a wonderful word that's, that's uh, translated, translated. It is a word that means to be transported from one place to another. It was used to describe the repatriation of people from one geographical area to another. So you think of that in relation to the gospel. The Lord has moved us from a position whereby we were under Satan's thraldom and dominion. And he has brought us under the power of the gospel into the kingdom of his dear son. Or as it is in the margin of our authorized version, the son of his love. Then he speaks of redemption through his blood. We've been ransomed. A price has been paid to deliver us from our sins. And of course, redemption is seen in the forgiveness of sins. This is what the Lord has done. Then Paul goes on from there to speak about who the Savior is. Emphasizes that the one who died on Calvary is the great creator. That he is God manifest in flesh. Everything was made by him. And this is a great doctrinal passage of Colossians, which has vital teaching for the Lord's people. The Apostle Paul would have his readers, his hearers indeed, when the letter was read to them, to focus on Christ and his great work for them. Now let me just say that there's an intermingling and there's an overlapping of these two themes, the person of Christ, who he is, and the work of Christ, what he has done, from verse 12 down to verse 22. Because Paul starts out, as I intimated last week, talking about the work of Christ, what he has done, then he talks about the person of Christ, and then he returns again to the work of Christ. And we learn from this, do we not, that we cannot divorce the person of Christ from the work of Christ. The value of his work is to be measured by the value of his person. And we've been talking, therefore, about who Christ is. We started out by looking at the Lord as described in verse 13 as his dear son. He's translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. I pointed out that in the margin it is literally the son of his love. Christ is his well-beloved Son. And I made the point, and I make it again, that the same love that the Father has for the Son is the love that he has for all the sons of God. You read the prayer of Christ in John 17, 
And he speaks about the love that the Father had for him from all eternity. And that's the same love wherewith he loves his people. And to me that's an incredible truth. You mean God loves me the way he loves Christ? That's exactly what the Bible says. His dear son. We then looked at the second great description here. In verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image. The word in Greek is icon. It literally signifies a precise copy or an exact reproduction. In other words, when you look at Jesus Christ, you're looking at God. When you see the Lord Jesus, you have there a revelation of God. Now, obviously, we believe in the persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Strictly speaking, the Lord Jesus is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. It is not accurate to say that Jesus is the Father. It is not accurate to say that the Holy Spirit is the Father, the Father is the Spirit, the Father is the Son. That is a heresy that was taught by a bishop called Sibelius. And Sibelianism is indeed a heresy. It's held by many even today. In some of the churches of God, some Pentecostal groups, they hold to what is called the oneness doctrine. We don't believe that. Yes, we believe in one God, but we believe in one God in three persons. And the three persons are one God. They're not three gods. They are one God. Therefore, when we say Jesus Christ is God, we mean that He is 100% God. He's not one-third of God. He is, as Paul points out here in chapter 2, verse 9, one in whom there dwells all the fullness, the pleroma of the Godhead in a body. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Do you think about that? in relation to that little baby that was born in Bethlehem. And those shepherds who came, they saw that baby lying in the manger. What they saw there was the fullness of the Godhead in a body. What an incredible thing. Oh, what matchless condescension the eternal God displays in the Incarnation. But He is... The revelation of God. The Lord Jesus himself taught that in John 14 verse 9 when he said to Philip, He that has seen me has seen the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He is the very image of the invisible God. What does that mean? Well, it means that everything that you can say about God, you can say about Christ. Christ is the perfect image, the visible representation of the invisible God. And that is a wonderful truth that Paul expounds in this first chapter of Colossians. But from there, he goes on to speak of three further great uh, characteristics of Christ or descriptions of Christ that I want to mention to you tonight. Let's look first of all at verse 15. Colossians 1 verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God? We've dealt with that. The firstborn of every creature. The firstborn 
of every creature. In connection with that, I want us to look at Revelation chapter 3 for a moment. The book of Revelation chapter 3. And we're reading verse 14. And there the Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is a synonymous term with what Paul uses here in Colossians chapter 1. The firstborn of every creature. Now, in our day, there are many false isms, false cults, and false religions. And a lot of them, practically all of them, are guilty of grave error in relation to the person of Jesus Christ. And a lot of the error is based upon a misinterpretation of these words. For example, the Watchtower Society, I like to call them the Russellites. You'll know them better perhaps as the Jehovah's Witnesses. But I think that's a misnomer because they're neither anything to do with Jehovah nor are they his witnesses. But if you want to call them that, the JWs, they wrongly teach based on this scripture that Jesus Christ was a creature. That he was the highest creation of God rather than, as Paul makes clear and the scripture generally makes clear, the Creator. Now what do they do? They take the Scripture and they twist the Scripture. They, to use Peter's words, rest, W-R-E-S-T, the Scriptures out of their context. Look at Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Speaking about Paul, and it's interesting that he does that, he says, Paul, as also in all his epistles... Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. That means they tear them out of their context, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Isn't that interesting? He's talking about the epistles of Paul. There's things in Paul's epistles that are hard to understand. And he says, Peter does, there are people who take those things And they tear them out of their context and they build upon them a pretext. They build upon them doctrines that are not scriptural. This is one of them. That Jesus is a creature rather than the creator. And people will twist the Bible in order to teach their heresies. Now the context of this chapter 1 of Colossians and verse 15 shows us their error. Look at the following verses. Verses 16 and 17. For by him, that's by Christ, were all things created. That are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created by him and for him. And notice this. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. He is not a creature. He is the creator. So what does this mean? The firstborn of every creature. Well, the word firstborn suggests at least two things. It suggests his priority. 
his priority and not, I would emphasize, in relation to time. It's not talking about a period of time. It's referring to rank or order of importance. When it says firstborn, it means first in order of rank. It means of first importance or of first rank. He is first. He is the preeminent one. And as Paul expounds here, nothing ever came before Christ in time, and nothing came before Christ in order or rank. No one is above him. No one is above him in dignity, in importance, or honor. Here is the absolute pre-existence of the Son. And this is a most important doctrine. The eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. My Bible teaches that God is the eternal Father. It also speaks of the eternal Spirit. And the Bible teaches the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. At Bethlehem, he didn't become the Son of God. He is the Son of God because he always was the Son of God. You will notice in that great text, it's often quoted around Christmas time from Isaiah, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now think about that. The child is born. The son is not born, the son is given. He didn't become the son of God at Bethlehem. The son of God took into union with his deity, our humanity, apart from sin, that he might be our saviour. The pre-existence of Christ is really an important doctrine. And therefore the firstborn, as it's described here, refers to the eternal generation of Christ proceeding from the Father. Let me quote here an Old Testament verse. It's in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 89 and verse 27. There the scripture records, Also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. See the context? What the firstborn signifies is to do with order or rank or importance. In other words, Christ is the highest of the high. He is the son of the highest. Christ Jesus is above all creation because he is the creator. It is he that hath made us. Firstborn suggests his priority. It also, as a title, suggests his sovereignty. That he is sovereign over all creation. The writer, the commentator, Lightfoot, puts it like this. God's firstborn is the natural ruler, the acknowledged head of God's household. I like that. Christ is the sovereign Lord of all creation. Remember what Jesus said on one occasion. Can I not do what I will with mine own? He is the sovereign Christ. And the hymn that we sang earlier tonight puts it very well. Far above all is our Savior enthroned. Far above all, far above all, Jesus the crucified. Far above all, low at his footstool, adoring we fall. God hath exalted him 
far above all. And we must always hold, as old J.A. Alexander put it to his students when they were graduating from Princeton in those days when it was a decent place. Young man, always hold the very highest views of Christ. Always hold the very highest views of Christ. You can recognize a heretic by the fact that he will denigrate in some way, shape or form the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn of every creature. Secondly, in connection with this, and we've been emphasizing it already, he is the creator of all. He's the creator of all. Look at verse 16 of Colossians 1. For by him were all things created. And he fleshes that out. Things that are in heaven and that are in earth. Things that are visible, things that are invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. He's the Creator of all. Now, when the Bible speaks of the Creator, it's obviously referring to God. Because creation is God's prerogative. The ability to create belongs to God alone. We all know, I'm assuming we do, Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's nothing before the beginning but God. And God created all things by the word of his power. It is God's prerogative to create. And there are two verses that refer to Christ in this respect. One is in John's Gospel, the other is in Hebrews. And they're both chapter 1 verse 3. John chapter 1 verse 3. All things were made by Him. You would think Paul was quoting John, wouldn't you? All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That excludes nothing. Then you go to Hebrews to the chapter 1 and the verse number 3. Again, it's referring to Jesus Christ. Who being the brightness of His glory, that's God's glory, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. But just prior to that, he says in verse 2, by whom also he made the worlds. All things were made by him. Now that phrase, incidentally, all things, is mentioned six times in Colossians chapter 1. You'll observe this from verse 16 down to verse 20. In verse 16, all things were created says it again at the end of that verse, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And then in verse 18, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Christ is the creator and he is the sustainer of all created things. 
There is a false view that's held by people who call themselves deists. And uh, I believe one of the founding fathers of America was a deist. The deists believe that God created everything and then he more or less went away and left it. Just left it to work itself out. That's not scriptural. It's not right. Our Bible teaches us that it's God who sends the rain. It's God who withholds the rain. It's not us. It's God who's in charge of the climate, by the way. It's the Lord who's in charge of it. God is the one who sends the snow upon the earth. It's God who withholds it. And right here we see, do we not, concerning Christ in verse 17. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. You could translate that word consist, held together. By him all things are held together. And that, of course, brings back to our minds Hebrews chapter 1 again. Because right there we read concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in that verse. Verse 3, and upholding all things by the word of his power. God is in control. Christ is in control. And Paul emphasizes this fact in that great description of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only the firstborn of every creature, he is the creator of all. Now, the Apostle has shown Christ's relationship to the Father. Notice that in verse 13. He is the Son of His love. He has shown Christ's relationship to the creation. And we see that in the words that we've just been studying. And then we see that He deals with His relationship to His church. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn, firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is the head of the body. Christ Jesus is the sole king and only head of the church. The confession of faith rightly says that the Pope of Rome is not the head of the church. Not in any sense is he the head of the church, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition? Strong words, but words that I signed up to at my ordination and installation and several more times swore to the same thing when I started into two more new churches to be the confession of my own faith I'm not ashamed of it I believe it it's not popular to say it there are churches that have actually deliberately gone to the confession of faith and changed that so that it doesn't become offensive to those outside particularly those in Rome. But the fact of the matter is, the papacy is Antichrist. And the Pope is opposed, as Second Thessalonians chapter 2 makes it clear, to all that is called God or that is worshipped. 
the dynasty of popes, not the actual individual person, the dynasty of popes is Antichrist. There's a great book that was written by a man called J.A. Wiley, in which he takes a verse from Matthew where the Lord Jesus Christ said, and I quote, Many shall come in my name, saying, notice the tense here, I am Christ. He doesn't say, many shall come in my name, saying, we are Christ. Many shall come in my name. There's a succession. Each one of them saying, I am Christ. The Pope is dead. Guess what? Long live the Pope. Because the holy smoke goes up from the cardinals, and lo and behold, there's another one. And when he is gone, there's another one. Of course, we have at the moment the strange spectacle of two popes. Ratzinger, who is still alive, but disappeared off the scene. He's hardly ever heard from now, but he's still living. He's a pope. But he resigned. And so, Francis from Argentina took his place. But you know, this is not unusual because there was a time in history when there were three popes. All at the same time. All three of them issuing bulls against one another. That's a really good term, by the way. They issued these execrations, one against the other, so that the present Pope has the curse of at least two other Popes resting upon him at any given time. It's amazing. Let me tell you, there is only one head of the church. It's Jesus Christ. And anyone who will come telling you that he's the Vicar of Christ, he's Pontifex Maximus, that he is the Supreme Pontiff, that he's the Father of all Christians, I'm here to tell you, he's a liar. He is an imposter. He's neither a father, and if he is, he should be ashamed of himself because he's not married, nor is he, nor is he the head of the church. I love the souls of my Roman Catholic fellow countrymen. I could wish that every last one of them would have their benighted eyes open to the truth. But I can tell you, I can hardly express to you the hatred that I have in my heart for popery. For the system of Romanism, which is taking people by the millions to a lost eternity. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partaker of her plagues, that you be not partaker of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. Revelation 18 says that. Some of God's people are in that system. And God will bring them out and God will save them. One of our retired ministers, Brother Larry Power, was at one time ready to study for the priesthood. God got a hold of him, saved his precious soul. He was due to receive an inheritance from his grandfather because he became a Christian and left the Roman Catholic Church. He was thrown summarily out of his home and disenfranchised from everything that his family had. And yet the Lord blessed him. The Lord made him a preacher of the word and he lived long enough to see numbers of his loved ones brought to Christ. Christ is the head of the body, the church. 
Paul is repeating here in Colossians what he said in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And have put all things under his feet and gave him, there it is, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He is the head of the church. Now the word head... Paul uses it here. It suggests origin and source, as well as having the idea of leader and ruler within it. Origin and source. What does that mean? The body derives its life from the head. And this is a biblical teaching, is it not? We find this in at least a couple of places. We we find it actually in Romans as well. But the two places I'm thinking about in particular are 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 5. Let me just turn to those two scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Christ is the head, and we are the members of the body. He says, so also is Christ. You see this then in Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5, that great passage that talks about marriage and likens Christian marriage to the relationship between Christ and his church. And Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Notice that. Christ is the head of the church. And then verse 30. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church there is a body of Christ it's called the church there are several usages of the word church it always means the same thing it's the Greek word ekklesia in in the Greek it means the called out ones but when we think about the word church it may suggest the entire body of believers in all ages those who were redeemed from the beginning of time To the end of time, those who will be redeemed before Christ comes, they're all in his church. And that's what it's speaking about when it says in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The body, the entire body of believers, those that are already, some of them, in heaven, in the church triumphant, those who are yet on the earth, in the church militant. They're all part of the one body of Christ. But then you think about that in relation to the outworking of it in the world. There is today in the world the body of Christ. Those believers in various countries who are serving the Lord and living for Him, they're part of His body. But then there is a local expression of this. In many places you have what are called churches. They are congregations, assemblies of God's people. And they are the body of Christ. 
And so the same things that are said and predicated of the church in one place are true in another place. The body has its local expression. The assembly. And it should function as a body, just as we find in Ephesians when Paul is speaking about the offices of the church and the fact that there's teaching going on in the church, the body of Christ is being edified. This is all to do with the local church. But the body does refer strictly to all the people of God. Christ loved the church. The apostle describes them in Ephesians 3 verse 15 as the whole family in heaven and earth. There's one family of God consists of all the people of God who are in the church and as I say some of them are already in heaven and some of them are yet upon the earth but it's one family it is one body and Christ is the head of that church and as our head Christ is the firstborn from the dead did you see that description that Paul gives the firstborn of every creature verse 15 but is also referred to as the firstborn from the dead a scripture that we quoted earlier there from Revelation I believe it was what does that mean firstborn from the dead it means the first one to rise from the grave never to die again now people will go through the scripture and say well wait a minute wait a minute what about remember that young boy who died and Elisha went in there and he raised him to life surely that was like one of the first resurrections or what about Elisha himself remember he was in the grave and a man fell in there who was dead and he came to life when he touched Elisha's bones or what about some of those others that were raised to life in scripture what about the ones that Jesus raised like Jarius' daughter, who was 12 years old. Or the widow of Nain's son, who was in the middle of his funeral. I often wonder if that Jewish undertaker ever got paid or not. Because he never really got the job done, did he? He, he? His funeral was only half done. It's an interesting one. And then there's Lazarus, who in John chapter 11 was, he was dead. As we would say, dead as a doornail. Four days he had been dead. Now he's starting to decompose. He's stinking. He was really dead. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. So all of these people were raised. And not only that, <clears throat> but there were people who were raised from the dead after Christ's resurrection. They came out of the tombs after his resurrection. I always think about that. What an amazing thing that must have been. People are walking through the city of Jerusalem. Here comes old Jacob. Jacob, I was at your funeral. What are you doing? Well, I rose from the dead after Jesus' resurrection. But we look at all of these and realize every one of those that I just mentioned died again. They all died again. That young boy who Elisha raised, he lived presumably into adulthood and then he died. Same thing with Jairus' daughter. Same thing with the widow of Nain's son. The same thing with Lazarus. He grew old and he died again. 
But Jesus is the first one to be raised from the grave, never to die again. Never. And by the way, no one in Scripture ever died in the presence of Jesus. Check it out. No one ever died in the presence of Christ. Because death must give up its prey before the Son of God. What happened at the cross? The two thieves, when they came to them to break their legs. And they were going to do the same with Jesus, but they couldn't because God's word had to be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. When they looked and saw Jesus, they realized that he was dead already. Jesus died, and then the thieves died. Nobody ever died in the presence of Christ. That's an interesting point. But when it says Christ is the firstborn from the dead, it means he's the first one to rise from the grave, from death, never ever to die again. And that is why he's called, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, the firstfruits, and afterward they that are Christ at his coming. In the Old Testament, when a field was to be reaped, they would go in there and cut down the first sheaf. And that sheaf would be waved by the priest. You know when that was done? On the morrow after the Sabbath. So what's the significance of that? What's the morrow after the Sabbath? Well, the Old Testament, the Sabbath was Saturday. The morrow after the Sabbath is the Lord's Day. That's the first day of the week. The priest waved that sheaf. What is that? That's a type of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. It tells us in verse 22, In Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order... Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. When they had the feast of firstfruits in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 23, 24, they would cut down that first sheaf and it would be waved by the priest on the morrow after the Sabbath. Because Jesus was going to be raised from the dead on the first day of the week. That's why we worship on Sunday, not Saturday. People who worship on Saturday are in the Old Testament. They're in the old economy. They're in pre-resurrection days. The first day of the week is the day of resurrection. And so he's the first fruits. He's the first one to rise, never to rise again. And all those who are in Christ, who die, they will be raised to life. There's going to be some commotion one of these days in the graveyards of this world. When Jesus comes. W.P. Nicholson was an old preacher in my country and he used to say he could never decide whether he wanted to die and come up through the grave like a knife through butter when Jesus came. Or if he should be raised up into the air when Jesus comes and he'd still be alive. He said he, he couldn't figure out which one he would prefer. Well, the Lord made the choice for him. He will be raised with all the saints at that great day. But men and women, Christ has the preeminence in all things. He's the first one. And thank God, one of these days there's going to be a meeting in the air. 
As that little chorus puts it in this sweet, sweet by and by. I'm going to meet you, believer. Meet you over there in that home beyond the sky. Such singing we will hear. Never heard by mortal ear. It will be glorious, I do declare. And what does it say? God's own Son will be the leading one in that meeting in the air. In all things, He has a preeminence. It's all about Him. Heaven is all about Him. Christ is God, and He is thus worthy of all our honor and our praise. If He's the firstborn of every creature, and He's the head of the body, then surely He's worthy of first place in all of our lives. It's not right to give Him the leftovers, the dregs. We're supposed to give Him first place. For He is God. He's our living head. And when we get to heaven, heaven is going to be all about Him. Where Jesus is, tis heaven there. But preacher, what about all the loved ones? Isn't it going to be great to see them? Yes. But what about all those great preachers and missionaries of the cross? Isn't it going to be wonderful to see them? Yes, it is. Isn't it going to be great to see the apostles and Paul and Peter and these other men that we read about in Scripture? Wouldn't it be great to meet Spurgeon? Yes, it will. I'm looking forward to that. But it's all going to be about Christ. Because when we get there, we're going to be taken up with Him. Where Jesus is, tis heaven there. May the Lord help us to give Christ His rightful place. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the head of the body. He's the image of the invisible God. Let us worship Him, our Lord and our God.